Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, President Obama is finally going to Congress to ask for permission when it comes to ISIS to do something. We're just not sure what. He's already doing something, and of course he doesn't really need a new uh, authorization, uh, in my opinion. So in some sense, this will be confusing. You know, we're fighting a war. He gave a national address, what, about four or five months ago now, uh, saying we were going to uh, bomb uh, ISIS and degrade and destroy them. Uh, He's been doing it to a degree since then, and now he goes to Congress suddenly with a draft uh, authorization for the use of force. I think it's going to confuse people abroad. I think it's going to be a confusing debate here. He's got these bizarre restrictions on the use of force, which I think are kind of unprecedented, uh, time restrictions and, and no use of, I don't know, what is it, offensive enduring, enduring offensive forces right. or some such thing. So I think it's going to be a somewhat pointless and uh, frustrating debate on the Hill. Uh, my notion is, you know, I, I'm all for destroying the Islamic State or ISIS or whatever we're calling it these days, and Congress should pass a one-sentence authorization saying the president's here, hereby authorized to use all necessary means to destroy ISIS. Uh, it is interesting that it, if you look at the uh, loopholes and the restrictions, I, I think a shorter version would be, I want authorization to do whatever won't work. But if something actually starts to work, I'm not interested in that. I mean, it's depressing, and, and uh, you're right. I mean, it's one thing if Congress somehow pushed back and said, we don't trust you, we want these limitations, maybe you'd accept that as a commander-in-chief if you felt you could still live with them. It's another thing to propose it. I mean, think what that says in a way. I mean, it's, he doesn't, I mean, he, presumably he has confidence the way he's going to conduct this war. Presumably he knows what the point is. Why is he proposing something with limitations? Well, because I guess he's so shell-shocked by Iraq or thinks we're also shell-shocked by Afghanistan and Iraq that we need to limit ourselves ahead of time to tell the group we're fighting, the horrible terrorists, uh, brutal murderers that we're fighting, that don't worry, this, you know, we, we don't have the, we're, it's not an open-ended war for us, and, and we're very limited. We're going to limit ourselves in the forces we use. It's, it's really uh, it's a bad precedent, and it's just a bad practice, and it, is, of course, signals a broader problem with Obama's foreign policy, which is uh, whenever he wants to do something even slightly aggressive, uh, this uh, this authorization for the use of force. Think of the Afghanistan surge several years ago. He immediately undercuts it by saying, oh, but, you know, we're going to start drawing down as soon as the surge is complete, in a sense, with Afghanistan. And now it's, I want to use force, but, but not too much force. Uh, the If I'm reading this correctly and seeing the movement, we have to assume then that ISIS is going to be around at least through the next election. In other words, whoever the next president is is going to have an ISIS problem, assuming some other historic force doesn't, you know, assuming whatever, Iran or somebody doesn't take them on. Is is that really the president's policy to leave ISIS around? Well, I think he keeps telling us how long a problem, you know, long-standing a problem it's going to be, and there are these deep roots for it. So, yes, it's a long war. Look, there's some truth to that. We're not going to get rid of all uh, Islamist uh, terrorism in two years, but the idea that we can't do a heck of a lot of damage to them and that we shouldn't be trying to uh, is a little is a little ridiculous. Generally speaking, his foreign policy does seem to be, though, to uh, kick the can down the road and, and try to uh, make the next president deal with all these terrible problems that he's dealing with in a half-hearted way. Uh, one of the big uh, conversations is regarding the recruiting that ISIS has been able to do, and apparently the Defense Department is saying, oh, my gosh, they've had a flood of recruits since these horrific videos have been released and it's drawing people in. That contradicts the narrative of the White House, which is they're pariahs and there is no support for them in the Muslim world and they're just fringes of the fringe, but also does raise the question of whether or not the uh, Pentagon is trying to push back some against the White House to try to you know, make 
the problem's so evident that even Valerie Jarrett has to admit it and uh, get more uh, muscle uh, where needed. Yeah, people at the Pentagon, serious people trying to do their best for the country that they've sworn to defend, are very frustrated by this administration. I, I was over in Munich at the security conference this weekend. There are a lot of senior military guys there, and it's clear that they're frustrated by what's happening in Ukraine, where we're sort of blustering a little bit against Putin, but not providing even defensive weapons, let alone real training. Uh, for the Ukrainians who are fighting for their own country, for, for, uh, after all. Um, the same is true. You know, this is the military. It's, it's embarrassing if you're a senior military commander. You know what our capabilities are, and we're fighting uh, with a couple of hands behind our back, I guess, against ISIS. And, and in other parts of the world, we're not being serious either. And we got out of Iraq, and look what happened there. And now they're being ordered to draw down in Afghanistan uh, so that Obama can say on January 19, 2017, I've ended that war too, even though no military commander thinks that's a prudent course of action to go to zero uh, combat forces. So I think they're very frustrated. We have civilian control of the military. They're doing their job as best they can, but, and they're pretty guarded even in private. I mean, I, I, but, you know, they, are, uh, they aren't happy, and, and they're right not to be happy. I mean, presidents do not have to go along with the advice, obviously, of their generals. Often they should overrule that advice, but they have to be serious about the challenges facing the country. And when they ask the military to do something, they kind of owe it to the military to be serious about giving them the tools to do the job. And I think the military feels they're being sort of thrown into a bunch of things and used as a kind of a, a brandished around about as a weapon without being actually able to carry out a serious military campaign strategy. Uh, there was a news story in a headline a few days ago, Bill, uh, out of Germany where two Palestinian Germans had firebombed a synagogue and the judge found them guilty of arson but didn't find them guilty of many of any of the many other hate crimes laws that Germany has because he said this wasn't a hate attack it was a political protest against Israel Israel's policy in Gaza and it was meant as a protest and I gasped and said oh my gosh we got problems over here in America but we don't have those problems and then I saw the White House's kabuki mime dance of fumble over whether or not uh, Wack Job Islamists, uh, the Wack Job Islamists who shot up the uh, kosher grocery in Paris, had targeted it because it was a kosher grocery. And I'm doing, well, what, where is this coming from? I mean, it is not news that there is tension between the violent end of Islamism and uh, Judaism. Why would the White House get themselves in this spot? You know, who knows? It's sort of like they decided first that we can't call it Islamic terrorism. We can't, it has nothing to do with Islam. It's a bunch of wackos. And then somehow to acknowledge that Jews are being specially targeted would somehow, you know, back you into the notion that well, it has something to do with Islam's particular uh, distaste for, for Jews and uh, the, you know, long legacy now over three decades or so of Islamic, at least, of Islamic terror against Israel and against Jews, not in Israel. We know in Argentina and God knows France and a ton of other places. Uh, in Mumbai, India, where they went after, you know, killing uh, scores of people in the hotel, they went and killed the uh, rabbi who was running the Chabad house in, in uh, Mumbai. So um, I guess the administration, it's sort of one of those cases where you start down a certain road of political correctness and it kind of leads you to a place where even your friends are looking at you and thinking, God, can't you just... Well, you know, you, you, you look ridiculous. But it is, there seems to be, I'm setting aside the, the many conversations that we've had about uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, and that is a concern and a trend. There's just something, I, I, I guess the best word I can say as a guy who grew up in South Carolina, they're just off. 
on right. Israel in the White House. What is re- what do you think is really going on? Is it geopolitics sucking up to Iran and showing that you've got distance between Israel, or is it something at a more kind of cultural level? I am I am just completely puzzled by this. No, I think it's it is several things, kind of all of the above. I think this is a president who's never been that sympathetic to Israel. Always thought Israel was based on a deep injustice to the Palestinians. Had a dream of being the president to preside over the creation of a Palestinian state. That looks like it's not going to happen, and not because of anything Israel did, but because Hamas is, is ruling Gaza, and the Palestinians are incapable of giving any assurance that a state they ran wouldn't be a terror-sponsoring state. So uh, as a result, though, Obama's frustrated. He lashes out at Netanyahu, who he's happy to blame for that. He wants to cut a deal with Iran, who's the one person saying, this is a bad deal, it's a dangerous deal, Netanyahu. Uh, uh, also, Netanyahu, you know, has been generally has stood up for himself and hasn't just rolled over for Obama. Though he's been polite, I think, um, in their what five years of being in office, I guess six years of being in in, in their respective offices at the same time. So, I think it's a lot of uh, anger and dislike of Netanyahu, a certain disdain for Israel, and you see it in their attempt to delegitimize Netanyahu to encourage Democrats to boycott the speech. I mean, it's really amazing. Whatever problems there were with protocol or whatever annoyance Obama feels about Netanyahu, the idea that he's coming here to give a speech, it's just a speech, it's going to be about Iran, he'll be very polite to the president, of course, and the idea that you're going to try to create a crisis, really, between the two countries and push Democrats to create a crisis between one of the major political parties here and Israel, or Israel's prime minister, and do everything they're doing to trash him on background, and sometimes not even that much on background. Um, it's really remarkable. I agree. It's beyond just the geopolitical or strategic difference. There is a kind of disdain and dislike and a sense that Israel and Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has to be put in his place. And um, I don't think it's going to get better. I think I think Obama's unleashed here in his second term. Didn't he say, I think Axelrod says in, in, in his new book that's been excerpted somewhere, that uh, one of the private things uh, Obama said, felt is that he was being too cautious, too polite, too nice to Netanyahu in his first term because he, you know, obviously had to get reelected. And now he can sort of express his true feelings, and, he, and he's doing that. Uh, will there be some accommodation made, do you think, that uh, causes the Netanyahu speech to either not occur, to only to occur behind closed doors or one of the other ideas floated around? Or is that coming from the people who are trying to stop the speech and uh, trying to put uh, the Congress and Netanyahu into a corner? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think he will give the speech. He will give the speech in public to Congress. I think most Democrats will end up going because they know, again, it's not that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have done it quite this way if they were if they controlled the House. But once he's speaking, it is rude not to come. And it is a gesture. What are you saying when you don't come? You're saying that you uh, think it's not worth respecting the prime minister, the elected prime minister of the state of Israel. I, I really think that would be wrong. I think even most Democrats aren't going to be willing to make that gesture, and I think they should be held accountable if they do, incidentally. Whatever, again, whatever one's feelings about the details of the Iran negotiations, whatever one's feelings about how Bader offered the invitation, once it's happening, you've got to stand with Israel, I think, and not be in the position of boycotting the Israeli prime minister. Really, people who don't come to that speech are, in effect, signing on, I think, to the movement to boycott and delegitimize Israel. And there is a national boycott. In other words, it's not a... uh... Uh, a fringe notion or something to be interjected into the argument when you've got right now the divestiture movement happening and you've got people like the congressman, my congressman, Congressman John Lewis here in Atlanta, who will not be showing up. His constituents frequently talk about that. It really does empower 
whether you, you know, whatever the president's motives or the Democrats motives, you are absolutely feeding red meat to the anti-Israel, borderline anti-Semitic wing of American politics. I, I totally agree. It's objectively playing into the hands of the enemies of Israel, and people should not do that if they want to then put out a statement on the side saying, you know, I wish it hadn't uh, developed this way, or I, I'm much more friendly to the Iran deal than Prime Minister Netanyahu. Obviously, they're free to do that, but they should, they should not boycott. Bill Crystal, we should not miss an opportunity to have a podcast with you. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.